What is contemporary death? Stephen Pressfield explains through his epic novel, Gates of Fire. Kirk and I will discuss how Pressfield describes the Spartans of 480 BC and how the warrior ethos uses fear as fuel while being driven by the courage of Spartan women. Here is Banff number two, Gates of Fire. Oh, you got notes and everything. Look at you all pro. All right. Published in 1998 by Doubleday and Bantam Dell, Gates of Fire is a portal into the Spartan life um, around 480 BC. The author is Stephen Pressfield. He's recognized as a top historical fiction writer and author of another favorite of Kirk's. The War of Art. Yes. So why do you like, uh, why do you like uh, War of Art? Uh, he describes everyone's uh, gift for procrastination in that year that getting shit done. Resistance, he always says capital R. Yep. So if anybody has read The War of Art, you would know what we're talking about. But The War of Art is a, I don't know if it's his second most popular book, but after Gates of Fire. Or The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bagger Vance. Do you know, I was, I was listening to an interview with him. He didn't get a penny for the movie, or, or maybe he did get paid, but he didn't get any creative license. He didn't. No. In other words, like he came, he said he came to the set one day and then they told him to beat it. Really? Yeah. Well, what's interesting about this is the gates of fire. Um, I found out in research on it. Uh, this, he sold the rights to of this book to George Clooney's production company. Oh, no kidding. And it was at the time when, you know, this type of thing was popular, you know, recreating that, you know, the, mythical figures of the past. And uh, there were some delays in it. Something happened where there was multiple delays. And then the movie 300 came out and had a critically acclaimed. So it was right around the time he was going to, Clooney was going to do them. So they're like, nah. Yeah, no kidding. Done and good. So Here. we're done. Gates of Fire. They were, um, they were called the Hot Gates because in Thermopylae, Greece, uh, Thermopylae is, I guess the name is Hot Springs. So that's kind of neat. So the Battle of Thermopylae was one of the many Greco-Persian wars of the time. And I don't know if you knew or did your research, but this battle was 10 years after the Greek-Persian 490 BC Battle of Marathon. So the 10 years after that. So is the Greeks the battle where the, is that where the marathon runner comes yeah. in? He delivered the note 26 miles, 200 yeah. yards or whatever. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? So I actually looked at that and it was, um, it was, I believe they said 24, 25 miles or something. So it was, what it was, was the distance between um, marathon and Athens. So the dude ran, apparently he died after <laughs> finished. But he wanted to tell the Athenians um, were winning. The Greeks were winning or won or whatever. And so they honored that race. And I guess in some Olympics game, there was, it was in London, 
I believe, uh, the marathon run. And the reason it's that 0.2, so it's 26.2. And they said the 0.2 was because the finish line was like at some uh, castle in London or some church or something. And they're like, oh, screw it. So they added the 0.2. <laughs> So that was kind of funny. I didn't know that. Speaking of Thermopylae and the hot springs, when the Spartan army came upon or were setting up encampment there, they had to rebuild a wall that had been there for forever. And they, you know, to, um, when was this, what do you mean? Rebuilt the wall. There was a wall, an encampment there. Okay. That they had to rebuild. But more importantly, when they got, got to Thermopylae to start defending it, there was, um, still, I guess a couple groupings of, bathers who hadn't gotten the word that a war was going to happen. So (laughs) they took all their tents, they took all their food and told them to beat it. And uh, they were going to sleep in those tents. Oh, no kidding. And, um, the United States, um, how do you pronounce it? I have it. Uh, yeah, that's close enough. Then keys other, we're not sleeping. (laughs) We're going to sleep outside. We're not going to use them too. So they just left them kind of billowing in the wind for a while. So that was, that was four eighty. So that was another thing that I don't know if in your homework that the Spartans, and we'll talk about the 300, but there was 7,000 other Greeks that were with them. Right. These 300 went first were supposed yep. to. So they had, no, they had, had other um, Greek uh, city states join them. And so the 300 were essentially the, uh, the main um, face. Of the Greeks. It was interesting why, how they not only chose them because of their bravery, their ability to fight, but they all had male heirs also. Yes. We're going to talk about that. Okay. That's everything I know about this book. Well, you better freaking know more than that. Okay. So uh, I got written down. Oh yeah. And then the battle of this battle that the gates of fire talks about the infamous hot gates, the battle of Thermopylae is um was actually a tactical defeat by the greeks and king leonidas knew that so what they talk about in a little bit in uh plutarch stuff about leonidas as well as gates of fire because the persians and greeks were fighting all the time the um the goal was to draw the attention to thermopylae to buy the other Greeks time. So essentially Leonidas knew it was toast, but he knew that in the grand scheme of things, that it was good for the war versus just this one battle. So that just kind of shows you the Spartan, you know, the warrior ethos was do not consider death of your individual, the end, because essentially the Spartan warrior culture is generational. It's not just you as an individual and that, you know, that's just, and we'll talk a little bit about that culture, right? But, um, so why don't you, why don't you, whatever you know about the book, give me a summary and then I'll throw it in here. I mean, from my understanding, it's, it's, um, so is it, uh, Zio or XO, um, was the, is it's written, uh, you know, through his voice and through a, um, one of the narrators for the Persian King Xerxes mm-hmm. uh, and Zeal was a, uh, a, not a slave, but not a resident of Sparta. And as he came to Sparta, Zionis, Zionis, yeah. Zionis came there. Um, 
uh, to Sparta, primarily because he and his cousin uh, were really the only ones left in his family when his town, Alcatos or whatever, got wiped out. His family got wiped out. Okay, so with that being said, go to page 32. Yep. Look for the goose when he goes to the farm or something. I got caught stealing a goose. Yeah, keep 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 reading because we don't have... Um, she was a fat prize. Her wings pegged for market and I was careless going over a wall. The dogs got me. The men of the farm dragged me into the mud of the livestock pen and nailed me to the hide board the size of a door, driving tan, tanning spikes through both my palms. I was on my back screaming in agony while the farm men lashed my kicking, filling legs to the board, vowing that after lunch they would castrate me like a sheep and hang me, hang my testicles on the gate as a warning to other thieves. Diamoch, which is his cousin, and Bruxus was that slave of his, of his family's crouched, hidden, up in the hillside. They couldn't hear everything. And that was a huge part of the story because yeah. they deformed his hands. Yep. And th- that's one of the reasons that this book is, I love the, you know, what I've read of it, but the, it's got the different names that are difficult and the words um, that he mean, they have, you know, are, were tough to pronounce. You have to find out what the meaning is while you're reading it. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that's just, you know, because we're so uneducated. We, oh, there's no we, doubt. We have to. Yeah, there's for sure. Uh, but that was a big part of it was um, he had. Um, his hands. Ceiling and they, they, but his hands, like you said, that's a great point because he wanted so desperately in the future yep. to be a warrior, but um, he had so messed, his hands were so messed up. And so it but allowed him to be a great uh, archer, I believe. Yes. That worked out so perfectly. So, yeah, so he. Um, Went to Sparta, got in with Alexandrios, who was uh, a, a young man in the, was it Apogee, uh, the, the Greek um, education system for males, where they were, you know, from the ages of like 10 to 29, trained at different stages. Did you, did you read that thing about that kid dying in the training? Go to 33, see if you can find it. It's um, page 33, they, he... He talks about that. One look at the boy's face and you could see he had passed beyond reason. He had made up his mind to die rather than raise the hand for quarter. The Irenes did as they were instructed in such cases. They prepared to wallop tripods so hard in four successive rapid blows that the impact would knock him unconscious and then preserve his life. I'll never forget the sound of the four blows made upon the boy's back. Tripod dropped. Drill instructors immediately declared the ordeal terminated and summoned the next boy. Proceeding that, two of the boy's mates from his training platoon kneel at each shoulder to catch the lad when he falls. At any time, the boy uh, may terminate the ordeal by releasing the bar and pitching forward to the dirt. Theoretically, a boy would only do this when thrashed to unconsciousness, but many pitched simply and they could no longer bear the pain. Between 100 and 200 looked down this day. Boys of other platoons, fathers, brothers, mentors, and even some of the boys' mothers kept discreetly to the rear. So they're talking about how they tested the young boys. First, they would line them all up in order. And then they would, uh, like these huge guys that were like 29, 30 years old, would come running at them and knock them out as, as hard as they could. And they're like young teenagers. They're young kids. And they did this excessively in, until these kids were like throwing up and, um, to get them used to pain and get rid of that fear and instill toughness in them. 
And they would, this one exercise, they were, uh, they would find trees, tree trunks, and they would spend all night trying to uproot a tree trunk. That was a really interesting part of the whole book. Yeah. The, the little bit I found out about the training that they went through. And then uh, after that, when that boy died, the people were not allowed to mourn. They just went back right into back their right training. Into their training. And so even, um, even uh, all the instructors, they had to keep a straight face while the other students are like, holy crap. Yeah. And they're like, you know, move the body out of the way, keep going. But they talk about that, the Spartans culture, right? It's a, it's an entire warrior culture. Like there was, they said there was no money. There was no, like everything was relative to the warrior culture. So then even the women, the mothers, all that had that, you know, that warrior type of mindset and the entire, you know, city state was essentially like, like, you know, a military. And it, yeah. it was just this warrior. Uh, and, and then the, the thought is that, you know, there would be other types of people, maybe there's doctors and, but I'm assuming that it all went back to ensuring that the warrior uh, is at the best they can be. And then you think of like, there's those stories of when they choose the babies, the baby doesn't have the look, they abandon the baby. You know, then that movie 300, it shows them just throwing them off the cliffs and stuff. If they don't meet the standards of a warrior. And then you think like, obviously in hindsight, you think like how many Nobel laureates did they throw over, throw a, cliff. over a cliff? Right. And that could that, could there have been another valuable, um, person to add to that warrior culture that made him even stronger, but whatever. But in that mindset, you know, uh, in 480 BC, uh, the Spartans definitely, you know, from day one, they had to have that warrior, uh, that warrior vibe. No, and it was, they even speak, that's a male dominated society. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they, but they speak to at least Pressfield did, you know, the, the mother's courage of how special place the female role played in that society that, you know, they bore these sons. And then even though every fiber of their body would want to go grab them and bring their sons back from going to war when they were chosen, you know, to go to the school and successfully train, you know, go off the battle of uh, what it must felt like for a mom to just send her young boy off with these guys, knowing that at some point they're going to. Pressfield said that um, the women of Sparta were, the steel in the warrior's spine. That's how he described it. So he also, and, and I want you to read that too, is like King Leonidas rounded up the infamous 300, right? And one of the parts of the story is he took the husband and the son of one woman. So essentially she has nobody. So they usually would take one. Yeah, right. And then, but she got both. And they called that double grief. So read the part where he says, I choose them not for their own valor or whatever. It would help if you highlighted it. Sorry. With apologies for my tar tardiness, he yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, keep going. You start from there, yeah. With apology for his tardiness, he sat, thanking me for presenting myself so punctually and inquiring after my ailing father and others of our family. Though it was plain, he bore a thousand burdens of the army and the state, not expecting the presence of his own imminent death and the bereavement of his beloved wife and children. 
Yet as he took his bench, he dismissed all from his mind and addressed himself to me alone with undiverted attention. Do you hate me, lady? Those are his initial words to me. Where I were you, I would. My hands were now trembling with fury, hard to suppressed. He cleared a space up upon his bench. Come, daughter, sit here beside me. I obeyed. The Lady Giorgio moved suddenly closer upon her saddle. I could smell the king's sweat of his exercise and feel the warmth of his flesh beside me as when a girl I had known my father's when he had called me to his council. Again, the hard surfeit of grief and anger threatened to take me out of hand. I fought this back with all my force. Uh, the city speculates and guesses, Leonidas resumed, as to why I elected those I did to the 300. Was it for their prowess as individual men at arms? How could this be when among champions such as Polynicus, Danicus, Alpheus, and Moran, I nominated as well unbolded youth such as Ariston and your own Alexandros? Perhaps, the city supposes, I divined some subtle alchemy of this unique aggregation. Maybe I was bribed or paying back favors. I will never tell the city why I appointed these 300. I will never tell the 300 themselves, but I now tell you. I choose them not for their own valor, lady, but for that of their woman. And for those words of the king, a cry of anguish escaped my breast as I understood before he spoke what further he would say now. I felt this hand on my shoulder comforting me. Keep going. Grace stands now upon, Greece stands now upon her most perilous hour. If she saves herself, it will not be at the gates. Death alone waits us and our allies there. But later, in the battles yet to come by land and sea. Then Greece, if the gods will it, will, will preserve it herself. Do you understand this, lady? Well, now listen. When the battle is over, when the 300 have gone down to death, then will all Greece look to the Spartans to see how they bear it. But who, lady, who will the Spartans look to? To you, to you and the other wives and mothers and sisters and daughters of the fallen. If they behold your hearts riven and broken with grief, they too will break, and Greece will break with them. But if you bear up, dry-eyed, not alone enduring your loss, but seizing it with contempt for its agony and embracing it as an honor that is in the truth, then Sparta will stand, and all Hellas will stand behind her. Why have I nominated you, lady, to bear up beneath this most terrible of trials, you and your sisters of the 300? Because you can. That's gold. That is gold. Yeah, that is good. That sums up what... Um, that's that point that I was trying to make. Um, oh, you made it. That he's, you know, that, that they put a huge role in it because. I mean, that's where he's able to tie it all together is where it, it, the whole warrior ethos throughout the entire book has that male dominated yeah. type of thing. And then Leonidas says, this is my secret, right? Yeah. You, says, you yeah. guys are the steel in the spine of these dudes, right? Yeah, and that, that's what he, yeah, and he explicitly tells her, chosen. When the battle is over, the 300 have gone down to death, then all Greece will look to the Spartans, and you will have to be standing there representing. That's pretty solid. I mean, that's got to make her feel good, right? But those women were like, 
there was no, um, I mean, they kind of knew, you, have you ever heard of that expression? Uh, when you come back, you better have your shield or be on it. Have you ever heard that? That was an, a Plutarch. He's like this Greek philosopher. And he, he was, he's essentially the guy that kind of like cataloged all the Greeks or whatever in the, and, um, he does like Alexander and Spartan and Leonidas and stuff. Anyways, he said, um, that the Spartan women would tell their kids going to battle. You better, when you come back, you better either have your shield or be on it. And what that meant was you either be walking back in victory or be dead. Or dead yeah. Cause I don't want you being a coward and turning around saying, I didn't want to fight. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that was the mother saying that to their kids. So imagine the warrior culture when your mom is saying, look, how long did this, this um, period last where the Spartans were, you know, well, there they've always been obviously the badasses of um, the whole Greeks, but Alexander, um, Alexander, he, he didn't uh, like King Philip was uh, Alexander's dad. Right. And there was an actually famous line about that too, is um, Philip said to the Spartans, but he says, Hey, you know, if I come down and invades the region, if I come down and invade the region, I'm going to wipe you out. And the, the Spartans said, if, so they were known for their terse, like, very, very, very few words. Well, they're taught that in that school. Yeah, in that school. Small, small words. Yeah, and then um, uh, the famous line that Leonidas, when um, they were standing at the gates, they said, hey, we don't want you. We just want your weapons. And I have a Mulan Labe, I guess that means we'll just come get them, right? So there was never a, um, or, or the other one was, there were somebody said to them, they have so many archers that when they, they shoot the arrows, it'll, sh- you know, blind the sun or something. Block out the sun. Block out the sun. Yeah. And then he said, said we'll fight in the shade. <laughs> so my point is, is like, it was always about the fight. And they even said something about that with the battle of marathon as they were doing some ceremony or something and they couldn't go, um, couldn't go help. And that was one of the, anyways, the, I think what's neat about, like you were saying about um, the importance of the women in the life of the warrior that made that culture. So, so significant because I mean, especially because the, like the guy, the, the, the boys were all raised away from home from a very young age. Their formative years were spent in that, that apogee system where they're in three different groups. You know, And I don't, I don't know if they, what eight or 10, maybe they were is what that seemed quite young. Was it that, that early? Yeah, but I think 10 to 14, 14 to 19, then 20 to 29 were the three different groups, maybe. The other thing, too, um, that they talk a lot about was kind of harnessing fear. Did you get that? So that was one of the things that um, Dionikis would say. He had, like, everybody around a fire. And... uh he wanted to talk about fear. Somebody like this, you wouldn't assume that word was even on his lips, the F word. But then he says, all my life, one question has haunted me. What is the opposite of fear? How does one conquer fear of death? 
the most primordial of terrors which resides in our very blood as in all life beasts as well as man and he started talking about the dogs there was a bunch of dogs around them and they say and then he says each dog knows his place he fears the dog ranked above him and he feeds off the fear of the dog below fear conquers fear and then he says this is how we spartans do it we fear a death but we fear something even greater than death and that is dishonor and that is exclusion from the pack but then he says is that really courage is not acting out of fear of dishonor still in essence acting out of fear there needs to be something nobler and then he goes on to say that we we look for the wisdom from the gods but not in matters of courage what has the immortals to teach us they cannot die their spirits are not housed as ours pointing to the flesh he calls it the factory of fear you young men imagine that we veterans with our long experience of war have mastered fear but we feel it keenly as you do more keenly for we have more intimate experience of it fear lives within us 24 hours a day in our bones we cobble our courage together on the spot the main we summon out of that which is the base fear of disgracing the city the king the heroes of our lines fear of proving ourselves unworthy of our wives and children our brothers or our comrades in arms for myself i know all the tricks and then he goes on to say well it's courage and he says do you know who owns it this pure form of courage more than any other i have ever known and you know they would they would probably think he's talking about king leonidas and stuff and he says no it's my wife and your mother and they smile and he says there's a clue here the words themselves for courage are female where terror is masculine Perhaps the gods we seek is not a god at all, but a goddess. Is this not the imperative of a mother's blood to give and to nurture above all that produce her own womb, the children that she has born in pain? We know that a lioness or a she-wolf will cast away her life without hesitation to preserve her cubs or pups. Women are the same. Now consider, friends, that which we call women's courage. What could be more contrary to motherhood than to stand unmoved and unmoving as her sons march off to death? Must not every part of a mother's flesh call out in agony and affront at such an outrage? Must not her heart seek to cry in the same passion? No, not my son. Spare him. That woman from some source unknown to us summon the will to courage this and their own deepest nature i believe the reason we stand in awe of our mothers sisters and wives he says we know you're afraid but instead of using the fear as an obstacle it was like channel the fear and so he would keep trying to emphasize that hey and he was like some middle-aged like he was 42 or something that Pressfield put in there, like he was an older dude, you know, he was yeah. a little pooped. Yep. But then he had these squires and stuff, I guess. And I think he married 
his brother's, brother's wife. Widow. Yeah. Widow, right, right. And he, he looked up to his brother and all that stuff. But I mean, that's the thing about this book is like, you know, each page really is uh, kind of the, it really makes you think of this archetype or archetype, the uh, warrior that Pressfield wants you to, you know, think like what type of person is this? And, you know, their, their whole thought was like, do the Spartans do this just to show how great they are? Do they do it just because they love war? Do they do that? And so Pressfield, the way I understood it, it was like, you know, love for Sparta, love for family, love for um, legacy. There's some sort of, you know, love of it. And then that that's where um, he kind of talks about that Leonidas is the love of their, their warrior ethos um, and their, and, and Sparta. So look, look again on, um, uh, 356 where King Leonidas, Leonidas at the gates gives the speech that they're all kind of, you know, anxious and stuff. And he says, he gathers them around. Leonidas gathers them around the 300. These assembled without regard to rank or station, compactly about their king. All knew Leonidas would address appeals to nothing so grand as liberty or law or the preservation of Hellas from the tyrant's yoke. Instead, he spoke, words few and plain, of the valley of Eurotas, of Parnon and Tagetus, and a cluster of five unwalled villages, which alone compromised that polis and commonwealth which the world calls Sparta. Thousand years from now, Leonidas declared, 2,000, 3,000 years hence, men a hundred generations yet unborn, may for their private purposes make journey to our country. There will come scholars, perhaps, or travelers from beyond the sea, prompted by curiosity regarding the past or appetite for knowledge of the ancients. They will peer across out on the plain and probe among the stone and rubble of our nation. What will they learn of us? Their shovels will unearth neither brilliant palaces nor temples. Their picks will prize forth no everlasting architecture or art. What will remain of the Spartans? Not monuments of mon marble or bronze, but this, what we do here today. Out beyond the narrows, the enemy trumps, trumpets sounded. Clearly now could be seen the vanguard of the Persians and the chariots and the armored convoys of their king. Now eat a good breakfast, men, or we all will be sharing dinner in hell. So that's what they wanted to be known as, as the warriors. They didn't, they didn't give a shit about anything else. That was it. You wonder, right, that the success of Sparta and the Greeks and their city states and this warrior mentality, the, you know, gates of fire is taught at, you know, the all over the world as, as what a warrior or a warrior archetype is. They bring it up and you were talking about 
Did they do it for the love of Sparta and the women and being, you know, a warrior? But he, Leonidas breaks it down. It's, you know, all of that is great for all your loved ones, your mother, your sisters, your wife, and your children. But we do this for our brother. Well, Kirk, thank you for your time today and your reading. So you are uh, our new Ian McClellan. <laughs> A little nasally Ian McClellan. <laughs> Midwestern accent. <laughs> Thanks for listening.